Awesome. Wow. Very cool. Everybody doing all right? You doing all right? Good, good. What an awesome morning so far. And uh, awesome time last night when uh, Pastor Tim texted me and told me I had to have as big a beard as possible. I told him I was already on the assignment. I had to start No Shave November early in October uh, because I... Anybody know No Shave November? People know that around here? Okay. Uh, just checking that out. I, I don't know how much deer hunting or all that goes. Do people deer hunt around here? Is that okay? All right. I'm from Southeast Ohio. I think we live off of deer hunting, um, although I've never hunted in my life. So uh, everyone else does. Um, I just try to look the part, right? Um, but anyways, we uh, the band uh, that uh, they had mentioned last night, I started a band a long time ago. Why I get situated. Sorry, I'm fumbly. Um, started a band a long time ago that's went on to be pretty big in its, in its genre and then uh, this year had an opportunity to start a new band, uh, and we played our first concert last weekend uh, in Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, so uh, over the summer, I guess I had my beard more more shaved down, more, uh, uh, you know, more appropriate, I guess, and um, less authoritative, uh, something like that, and anyways, so I figured I needed to have a more manly more manly beard when I did a did a hardcore concert, so I started No Shave November and October. Anyways, you guys need to know these things, right? This is important material. It's why you showed up today, I'm sure of it. <clears throat> Last night, we just, man, moved with whatever the Spirit of God was moving with and, and going with. How many of you enjoyed that time together last night? That was awesome. I know a lot of you don't know me uh, that weren't here last night. You really don't know me, and I'm getting to know you. You're getting to know me, and we'll have fun fun with that um, for sure. But man, last night was just a cool deal. Uh, thanks for being open and flexible. How many recognize when there's fresh wine being poured out, the requirement is to be a new wineskin? You can talk back. We'll, we'll be all right. We'll, we'll engage like that. Uh, and so when there's, there's freshness in what the Lord is pouring out, I think someone called this weekend Fresh Encounter, uh, but when there's something fresh being poured out, it requires a flexibility to be among us. Can you hear that? It requires some elasticity. It, uh, it requires our hearts to be very open to adjustment. Whoa. Anybody open for some adjustment? All right, that was a, about shouting me down up here. Holy cow. <laughs> there was just a roar that came out of those. How many of you open to some adjustment, right? I don't know about you, but I'm, I want, listen, if, uh, if, if, we're, if we're not progressing in, our, in who we are and we're not progressing in the Lord, we've just become something of religion, We've just become something of regulation, and we've just become something of, of mental ascent. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. And I don't know about you, but I'd kind of not like to not be that. Uh, and so uh, there's a real passion and a real heartbeat to say, Father, keep moving us into where your heart is moving, right? We sang it this morning about oceans and waves after waves and Take us out beyond, right? Take us further than what we've encountered so far. Take us beyond what we've understood so far. In other words, keep removing that which is veiling our eyes so we can see you more fully and understand ourselves more fully so we can bring forth further glory in the earth. 
That's right, there's more glory to be had. We're not there yet. We haven't arrived to the fullness. For the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. Have you ever heard that verse? You recognize that glory is just not some mystical cloud floating around. Can I wreck your brain for a second? This is glory. That's right. You're sitting on glory. Padded pews are a whole lot more glorious than wooden ones. We're in glory. There's heating and air conditioning. And there's this little piece of plastic hooked to the side of my face with little copper wires running to this little pack in my back pocket that doesn't even that sends something out of this clear back to there that runs through wires that goes clear up there, comes out paper with a magnet on the back of it. And it sounds just like me. And it gets to your ears the moment it's leaving my mouth. It was all in the dirt. Everything that makes up this iPhone was once in the ground. All of that which makes the glass, all that makes the plastic, all that makes the wires, everything inside of this was once in the dirt, and it was in the dirt clear back in the garden. Glory was put in the earth. And someone figured out how to go get out of the earth the potential that Father put there. Come on, somebody. You're not following this. The potential that's already resident, the potential that's already there, not potential that's coming, potential that's already in there. Can you hear this this morning? Someone under the inspiration of the goodness of Father was capable of taking their intellect and understanding and digging in some dirt and bringing out an iPhone. It's called unlocking glory. I don't know about you, but I love that I've got air conditioning in my car. I love that I've got a CD player that's got a red light on it while something plastic spins, and I get to hear something somebody... You're not... Whoo, Jesus. I mean, you might, might be like me. I can't even make that bread that lady's making out there. So it just stuff just blows my brain. Maybe you're, you're, maybe you don't think about these things, but these light bulbs that are shining in this room is glory. Someone figured out how to spin something with copper real fast and it sends something through wires that shows up in little glass things and whoop, we see glory. We're so disconnected in our thinking. We think so hyper over there in some outer space world and don't realize that the goodness and the glory of Father is right here among us. Someone figured out how to take a plant and make this shirt. And that's glorious. (laughs) Plastic, what the? Maybe I'm just too easily amazed. Someone figured out how to take a tree and make this. This is a whole lot better than scratching in dirt. And now we don't even need this. We can just, the heat of my finger makes what used to take a pin appear on glass. Glory. Thank you. Thank you, scientists. I... Last night, if you were here, you heard me say, I'm not that smart. Brainiac over here has got to fix me. 
I love it. I think your pastor and I are like made out of the same cloth. Um, but the reality is, is that the glory of the Lord is among us. Oh, come on, somebody. The glory of the Lord is among us. It's not something we're trying to get to. It's something we should be enjoying. Can you hear that? And so we have to recognize that the glory of the Lord is in all the wooden carpet, who concrete, all these things, because it is all rather, rather Steve Jobs ever meant for this to display the glory of God is not the point. Our God's so awesome that he'll show his glory through those who hate him. Nothing can stop his glory from emerging. Can you hear that? It doesn't matter if it's an atheist creating. It's still the glory of God. Because if the creation is smart enough to take dirt and make a satellite that orbits the earth so the signal from this phone can talk to somebody in Africa, if creation can come up with that, how amazing must the creator be? It's the glory of God. Whoo, Jesus. I got to teach you that when I show up places, we like to go whoop, whoop. So I need everybody to go whoop, whoop. That's it. So when I show up next time, everybody be ready. We all go whoop, whoop. I brought some stuff I didn't get to tell you about last night. We wrote a book a good few years ago called Generational Synergy, and I love looking around this congregation and seeing the reality that generations are together up in here. Come on, somebody. Uh, and so I really would encourage you to grab this book because it really gives uh, some, uh, some significant biblical insight uh, to how Father built and designed the generations to run together and move together. And can you hear it like this? There's simply some things we're not going to accomplish in the earth, and there's simply some glory that will not be revealed until we see generations synergized and doing it together. Can you hear that? And so we've got to not only have age groups showing up in the same room together. We've got to have age groups that are synergistically advancing the glory of God in the earth. Can you hear that? And so I want to encourage you to get that book. Uh, it's, uh, it really unpacks some things. Uh, you'll probably be uh, at least most of the reports that I get, bringing out the revelation we do from the story of Mordecai and Esther, as well as the story from Saul and David concerning Goliath. Uh, people just have never heard uh, the input, the insight the Father helped us begin to uh, to recognize. Uh, I've just never seen it that way before. So grab that. Uh, we've got, all, how many of you recognize this is a good time to get some Christmas presents, right? Anyways, I want to let you know we just got these cool little armbands uh, that are a hashtag rise above. On the other side of it says hope equals bold. These are uh, kind of a, a result of one of our spiritual sons uh, who lives in Kentucky that was uh, bound in heroin addiction for 12 years, 13 years of his life from his early or late teens into his early 30s. I'm talking 500 to 700 dollars a day heroin addiction as a physical therapist making six figures. Don't think they all look one certain way. Addictions everywhere, right? Addictions in all kinds of ways. It's not just needles and bottles either. 
But the reality is our spiritual son, I worked in, a, uh, I worked in a, an addiction ministry in Kentucky, and he came uh, into our program as an agnostic at best, mostly an atheist who was raised in dark, entrenched religious uh, church situations and rejected that and went on to pursue paths in life uh, that would somehow try to answer the deepest questions in him but never could. Does that make some sense? And showed up in our program. Uh, we had uh, some impacting times he encountered Father legitly and surrendered his life fully to Father two and a half years ago, and now we just planted a new congregation with him leading it in Kentucky. Come on, somebody! That's what I'm talking about. So he leads a ministry out of his uh, out of his city called Rise Above, and he made armbands for those. and And the the foundation of the movement that we lead is out of Second Corinthians three verse twelve that says, "For we have this hope, so we are very bold." And so he's grabbed that and make those armbands. So if you like to help us make a statement everywhere that we go, we're saying that hope is what allows our boldness to rise above every situation. Can anybody hear that? And so grab some of those. We've got hey, lady. Hi. Well, I guess it's men and men and ladies. My wife got my wife decided to take over my merchandise table. How many of you can recognize that? Probably changed things. And so we we commissioned a friend of ours that makes custom jewelry, and we've got uh, brand new custom made hope necklaces for ladies, kind of dog ta- dog tag style for men. It says hope is here as well as a keychain style, hope is here. These are just awesome. One, they look cool. You're supposed to say, yeah, they do, Eric. Those are amazing. That's, those are the best things I've ever seen. They're custom made from our friends uh, in Oklahoma, uh, and we'd love for you to grab those as a statement. How many? Well, I haven't got to preach it yet, but doggone it, I don't have enough time around here uh, to help us all see that the reality of hope is what we're living from. And so we get to make statements. How many of you recognize that words build paradigms? Semantics shape minds. Am I right about it? How many of you recognize even words that are not spoken but written make a statement? And so I don't know about you, I intend to try to find every avenue I can to make a statement of the reality that we live in. And so we've got female shirt styles like this. We've got a white male uh, style shirt back there that is simply uh, what you walk around in Walmart can make a statement. Okay, never mind. I'll just go back over here. And so we were like, now nah, you guys are fine. I just like messing around. Um, so I, I make those and I present those to you uh, so that you can be a part of a movement that's happening in the earth to announce that the hope of Father is in the earth. It's not something we're waiting on. Have you ever recognized that the body of Christ seems to be okay with the reality of hope somewhere down the future? Like at the end somewhere, it's all going to, it's, you know, yeah, yeah, well, if we can just hang on long enough, you know, it's all going to be good down there. But most of the body of Christ doesn't live in the present reality of hope. We don't embrace that Paul said we have. Someone say we have. We have this hope. It's not something we're waiting on. See, Paul also wrote that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Do you recognize that hope deferred does not mean you not getting what you want? That tends to be, it seems like, the way most people want to perceive that verse. Oh, well, you didn't get what you're praying for. You didn't get what you're believing for. Well, don't give up hope because hope deferred will make your heart sick. Well, hope is not wants. 
Unfortunately, we have reduced the power and the force of hope because we use the word hope when we mean wish. And we use the word hope when we actually mean want. And so we make wish about wants. And if you want something, it means you don't have it. So we make hope about something we don't have. We make hope about something we don't have because in our minds it's connected to our understanding of want. Well, I hope you have a good day today. I hope I get this cool necklace for Christmas. Boy, that was, that was a plug right there, wasn't it? Dang, I don't know where that came from. But we do it all the time. Well, I hope I get this for Christmas, right? Or I hope it doesn't rain today. And what you're really meaning is, is I wish or I want. I want this for Christmas and I want it to not rain today and I want you to have a good day today. You try it. You check yourself out and you try to stop using the word hope like that. Oh, it messes with you. I mean, it, I mean I'm almost a word Nazi when it comes to that. I hear people say all the time, well, I hope Jesus... Mm. Because hope is eternal. Hope isn't derived with you. Hope doesn't start with you. It's not, hope is not positive thinking. Hope isn't optimism. Optimism's optimism. Hope isn't optimism. Hope produces positive thinking and hope produces optimism, but positive thinking and optimism are not hope. They're the result of hope. Because hope is a present reality, a force of boldness. Hope is that which produces faith. So if you, have, if you don't really know what hope is, you're really not able to get in faith. Because faith is not belief. Belief is belief. Just trying to make this real easy, right? Belief is belief. Faith is that faith is your corresponding actions to your belief. So you can believe all day long and never be in faith until you step into and step forward into that which you're believing. So we have a whole lot of believers, but we have very little faithers. Whoop, whoop! Come on, somebody! And we have a whole lot of believers and very few faithers because we have almost no hopers. Because we make hope want instead of reality. Hope is a reality. It's not your emotional situation. So you really can't get your hopes up. And there's no way you can have your hopes go down. Because hope doesn't go up and hope doesn't go down. Because hope is constant. You getting this? So there's no such thing as hopelessness. Because hope can't come less. Well now... The reality is, is hope never goes up or down. You just either turn your back on it or let your grip of it go. You might feel hopeless, but that's just a deception. So you have to decide what you're going to believe. Right? And then more importantly, you have to, you have to decide what you're going to faith. So even when it looks like everything is going haywire and crazy and you feel hopeless about that situation, you have to come back to truth. That hope is here. 
for that situation. So then my actions correspond to my belief in that truth and I respond accordingly towards that situation. Because I respond from hope, not trying to get to hope. Woo! Sorry, my hardcore came out on me right there. I can... I'm just, I, this isn't even what I was going to talk about today. I was just trying to give you a commercial on this t-shirt. That's why you have to understand biblical hope is not just about good things. Biblical hope is actually best defined by an unconditional assurance. Father's goodness prevails. It's not something that's going to happen later. It's something that's already happened. Hope isn't about the future. Hope is actually based off the past. I was, I was going to get to this in my notes this morning because First Peter tells us that before the foundations of the world, what happened? The lamb was slain, right? So Father, Jesus, and Spirit didn't even create until hope was in play. We're not creating to get to hope. We're actually to be those creating from hope. We're to be those living our lives from hope, not trying to get to it. Because before the, before the foundations of the world, the lamb was slain. You cannot use Old Testament imagery to understand that. Because the old covenant was never an eternal covenant. So it wasn't back there in eternity past. The old covenant, in other words, the temple system, the sacrificial system, the lamb system, if you will, was not in eternity past because it's not an eternal covenant. That's why it's gone. You can't, have an inter- you can't have an eternal covenant that's gone, right? That doesn't make any sense. So it's vanished, it's vanquishedness. Boy, there's a fun word to figure out. It's vanquishedness proves it wasn't eternal. Hebrews chapter 8. For the superior covenant that Christ bought has done away with that which is fading away and become obsolete. You can't have something obsolete and eternal at the same time. Right? Are you okay thinking this morning? I'm just trying to think through this with everyone. And so back there before creation, the lamb was slain is not the picture of the, the temple. Jesus was, and he's really not a lamb, right? We all know that. So this is just metaphoric imagery, right? It's just symbolic. He doesn't really have wool and he doesn't go, "Ah." he really goes, whoop, whoop. No. (laughs) That's what Jesus is doing this morning. I hear him, man. I hear him. Whoop. And so Jesus back there, when we see this scripture about Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world, it's not the picture of a lamb on an altar of sacrifice. That's not what it is. What does a lamb symbolize? Even, matter of fact, why a lamb was used in the temple, in the sacrificial system, because a lamb is always a signal that something will go to its fullest extent needed without fighting against it. You're like a lamb led to the slaughter. Is like you're someone that, who's willing to go along without fighting the system. Jesus was always the one willing to go to the fullest extent necessary in order to reveal Father. 
That's what it means. Before creation ever started, Jesus said to Father, I will do whatever is necessary in order to reveal your goodness to your people. So before creation, we get to pick. I got to just, Jesus. I just get these blasts of glory like that. Sometimes I feel like I'm not, I might be that guy sleeping in the carpet in a minute. Who said that earlier? Over here? It's, it's an inside joke, I guess. Oh, hold on, I'm getting drunk. <laughs> so Jesus is there, the lamb, saying to Father, I will always go to the fullest extent to reveal what you're really like. Before there's ever an opportunity to see you incorrectly, I'm going to make sure I make the statement of what you are correctly. So hope is an eternal reality that was set before creation because it's the unconditional assurance Father's goodness prevails. That prevailing happened before creation was ever started. The goodness of who he is would supersede any kind of wrong understanding of him. If you was here last night, you heard me talk to you about what deception is. Deception at its core Deception at its origin that started in the garden. Deception is the wrong view of Father and the wrong view of yourself. So Jesus, before the foundations of the world, the reality of hope, the actual prevailing of all victory is to overcome wrong view of Father and wrong view of yourself. And Jesus accomplished that prior to creation. So we're not living trying to get to victory. We all get to live from victory. Hope is the present reality of victory. If you see Father correctly and you understand yourself correctly, there's nothing you lose in. Man, we got music going again today in here. This is rocking down there. Don't get distracted. Stay right here, right here. <laughs> so the goodness of Father prevails. And I guess maybe this will help segue into what I was... This is all off the t-shirt today, goodness. So we have this hope as the what? Anchor of our soul. So you have optimism as the anchor of your soul. How's that working for you? You got positive thinking as the anchor of your soul? Because I don't know about you, but there are some days I wake up, I can't get that positive thinking working. Some days I wake up, that optimism is turned totally off. I don't know what you... So if I have to live in my... If I have to live my life based on my ability to have positive thinking as my anchor, I'm a disaster. If my wants and my desires are the anchor of my soul... Right? Welcome to modern Christianity. (laughs) So you wonder why we live like this. It's called unstable in all of our ways because we're double-minded because one day we're positive and then one day we're not positive. Then we've got optimism. Then we've got pessimism. Then we've got... But when we come to the reality of what biblical hope is, the unconditional assurance, Father's goodness prevails. So we have an unconditional assurance. Father's goodness prevails as the anchor of our soul. We have no need to go wishy-washy all the time. We can be bold. We can thrust into what we're supposed to be going after because we have a present reality of victory that we're living from, not trying to do enough good things to obtain. Y'all getting this? 
I've got 20 hours of this online that you can enroll in our classes and just take all this in all you want. Hit pause, hit rewind, back that thing up and let me rethink this again. Because the reality is I can't give you all this in the next 20 minutes. And so I've tried to provide the best thing that I know between books right now, online material uh, and online schooling, stuff that you can grab and go through and ingest because this is the current reality fathers unlocking in the earth. Because father's a little bit, uh, how, how can I say this? Um, he's kind of done with the church making him look wrong. He's kind of done, and that kind of well, sounds harsh, but the reality is he's kind of not okay with you seeing him incorrectly any longer. Because his goodness has prevailed. He's so good, he's doing everything he can do to help you see him correctly. So you can understand yourself correctly. Therefore, you live your fullest. And when you live your fullest, you display the most amount of glory. The potential that's buried in you cannot get unearthed until you see him correctly and see yourself correctly. You take the top level of, if you will, of humans in the world, either from academics, from business, uh, from politics, take Trump at the presidency, take, whatever, take, take the highest sports figure, take LeBron James, take anybody that we would calculate as the highest level of success at what they do, and that's fantastic. But do you understand that in them is still such a massive unlocked potential that they've still not yet stepped into if they're not walking in the revelation of Father and the revelation of themselves? So we all got to know you and I that aren't even close to LeBron James on basketball. But the reality is if you, if you understand father and understand the beauty of your sonship, you're something far more successful than a basketball player. There is no, there is no measure, there is no greater measure of success than sonship. And when I say sonship, that's gender neutral, right? So because if us guys have to deal with being a bride, I figure you girls can deal with being a son. (laughs) So when when we awaken to the reality of our sonship, we actually are awakening to the level of success that we are. And then you understand you can't do any more to add to that success. So you actually get to live from success instead of trying to do enough things to get to it. So you no longer live striving to prove that you're somebody. You actually get to live from the somebody you already are. Jesus. If our hearts could just awaken to this reality. It's not something we're trying to get to. It's actually what he's already brought us into. Because it's he that brought us into him. So clear back there in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve, right? Sons and daughters living in communion and fellowship with a full revelation of Father and a full revelation of themselves, so much glory, they didn't even know they were without clothes. The glory was so amazing, we couldn't see anything inappropriate. 
I wonder if you live that way towards other people around you. That you actually see so much glory in them, you can't see what's inappropriate about them? I'm messing with something today. I don't even know what I'm saying right now. I'm telling you. But we're so busy wanting to expose other people's nakedness because we don't really believe there's glory in them. We just see them as dirt, meaning the the result of decay, instead of seeing them as gold dust. Because we're made from the dust of the earth. But we mostly picture that like the soil. But but pre-garden, back in the beginning of the garden, there was no death and decay, so there was no soil. But the rivers flowed through Havilah, the place of gold. So what do you think he used? What kind of dust are you made of? Gold dust? I just saw gold. That wasn't there a second ago. Three pieces of flickering right in front of me, I swear you can see gold dust manifest, it doesn't really matter. Like, that doesn't mean something's more important about you. It's just the reality of who you already are. You're made of gold dust. Not born again, you. At your origin. See, because your origin is actually good instead of evil. I'm messing with too much stuff now. Messing with too much stuff now. When God made things, Genesis 1, what did he say they were? Good. Do you think somehow human mistake overrode what God pronounced? So all of this sister that said earlier about the table, about all these, you know, that this table... That this meal is for those that are outside the stereotype of good. It's for them too because they actually are good. They're actually gold dust. No one's told them about it though. So like my spiritual son, they go searching everywhere to answer the question of who they really are. Because every heart is actually made from the DNA of eternity. You've already tasted boundless life before you ever tasted bound life. You okay with this? Is it, should I quit now? Ecclesiastes 3 says he put eternity within the hearts of man. Psalm says that he formed you in your mother's womb. So you're actually touched by him before you're touched by your mom? So your DNA tasted eternity before it tasted mortality? So your DNA actually knows what eternity tastes like? And when we live in this realm and we start being caged, our DNA screams out for boundlessness because we've already tasted it? Needles promise us boundlessness, bottles all the money in the world, all these promises that you won't be bound anymore or restricted anymore is what people pursue because no one's told them that those are actually false boundlessness because that needle will ultimately bind you. That bottle will bind you. That money will bind you. That 
Stuff on your computer screen will bind you. That food will bind you. That fame, that notoriety, that business, that workaholic will bind you. All under the promise of boundlessness. If I can just do enough. And so the reality is, is gold dust was formed and touched by boundlessness, eternity, right? Take, take eternity out of the concept of a timeline and understand eternity is without restriction. It's like light going in all directions simultaneously at the same time forever. So it's boundless. Do you understand our galaxies are expanding still? Because it's eternal. I may have just dropped a bomb. <laughs> what do I do, Jesus? What do I do? <laughs> How does this work? So, what I'm trying to perhaps, or maybe at least maybe whatever God's doing, that gold dust is shining at me again. Whatever, what I'm trying to get us to is to help us see that. Father is actually good. Because clear back in the garden, man came into deception. Can I give you this? Because if you see this piece, I think this will help you. And I'll finish with this. The two trees are, are there, the tree of life and the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. You have to understand the Hebrew word there for knowledge is not the idea of knowing. Because how many of you recognize God wants us to know right from wrong? So it's kind of dumb to perceive that God was telling Adam and Eve don't go find out what's right or wrong but the word knowledge there in the in the Hebraic language is a word that's more connected to the word determining so it's actually the tree of determining what's right or wrong so God said don't go eat from that tree because who gets to determine what's right and wrong only one does Because if he says it's good, it's good. And that's what he said about you. So quit thinking of yourself bad. Just dropping that off. I'll come back over here. The tree of determining good and evil was what we were to not eat from because in order to become the one that determines good and evil, you have to ascend God. In other words, it's the tree of making yourself God. It's the tree that you go eat from that you determine how you should do it. So in your marriage, you might be eating from the tree of determining good and evil because you might be doing marriage your way instead of his way. You might be doing economics your way instead of his way. We might be doing community our way instead of his way. You might be doing relationships and parenting and everything about life that you do. You have to consider, am I doing it from the tree of determining what I think is right or wrong for this situation? Or am I living from the tree of life, his way of doing things? So those two trees are there in this tree of determining good and evil because always the effort of the enemy, of Satan, always the effort of deception is what? To try to ascend the throne. That got struck down like lightning. So that which tries to ascend God always fails. So we wonder why we see a whole lot of failure. Because we keep trying to do it our way instead of his way. 
And so when we follow that path and go after that tree that we determine what's right or wrong, it all stems out of a deception of a wrong view of God and a wrong view of ourselves. because the enemy at the tree, the serpent, said to Adam and Eve, if you do this, you will be like God. They already were. They were already deceived in who they were. And they were deceived that they could be the ones to determine what's right or wrong. In other words, they were deceived that they could be God which is a wrong view of God because no one can overthrow God. So deception was at the core. So the issue in the garden wasn't sin, it was deception. Sin is actually the product of deception. Sin is just a, sin is just a symptom. We used to say it all the time in addiction ministry because you understand that, right? That addiction is just a symptom, it's not the cause. Sin is a symptom, it's not the cause. Deception's the cause. Wrong view of father, wrong view of yourself. So if you unwind, oh man, okay. So we have to consider that moralism is something different than sin. I really got everyone's attention there, didn't I? Morality is something different than sin and righteousness. Morality is something anybody can do. There's plenty of non-born again people living very moral lives. And there's a whole lot of born again people who are not living very moral lives. So this thing can't be about moralism. So sin... Biblically is defined as what? Has anyone ever done a study on what sin is defined as biblically? Sin is defined as missing the mark. Who's ever heard that before? You ever heard that sin is missing the mark? You have to ask the question, what mark is to be aimed at? If you make morality the target, then sin is missing the mark of morals. Or if you make the law the target, then sin is missing the mark of achieving the law. But God apparently really wasn't about the law if he did away with it. Just stuff to chew on, just some stuff to chew on. I don't Because the law tells us wherever sin is present, God can't be. Has anyone ever heard that? So what happened in the garden? When sin was present, where'd God come? Right to it. So God's actually attracted to sin, not repelled by it? That's why Paul said where sin increases, so grace increases all the more. Because he's not afraid of sin, because sin isn't about moralism. Sin isn't about missing the mark of the law. Sin is about missing the mark of what fathers like. Now, you might do immoral things because you don't understand father correctly or yourself correctly, but that's a symptom. That's a result. Woo, Jesus. So when Jesus came and said... 
I've come to take away the sins of the world. If that's, marked, if that's parked on law or moralism, then why do we all still fall short morally? Did Jesus not do what he said he came to do? If he came to take away the sins of the world, how are we all still, quote, sinning? I have a lot of time in a car by myself to think, so I just think on these things for a long time. But if we understand sin is missing the mark of what Father's like, and Jesus came to take that away, then we understand that Jesus is the true presentation of Father, then we understand he actually accomplished his task of taking the sins of the world away. He took away the deception of what Father's like because actually law produced the wrong image of God. God showed up in the garden before the law, before the sacrificial system, and before the cross. Someone talked to me about what in the world are we going to do with Enoch? That's pre-cross. That's pre-temple system, that's pre-sacrifice, and this guy named Enoch lived so close to God, he just up and disappeared off the earth. Didn't even die. How is that possible if sin repels God? How did he even come and talk to Abraham? How did he call Abraham the father of faith? How did he say David was his friend, a man after his own heart? Not a man trying to chase the heart of God, but a man who understood the heart of God. So he brought everybody in the temple, so he broke all the rules. Do you know how many times God broke the law? Check it out. Look all through the Old Testament. How many times did God break the law trying to give grace to the Israelites? Because he's not bound to the law. Because the law is the wrong representation of him and his goodness prevailed over that which wants to distort him. Whoop, whoop. I gave you so much today. I don't know how you're going to deal with it. I don't know what to do right now. Thank God. Go get the... Someone study this. And if you find somewhere that I'm... Off, off point or off base, please come and talk to me. I'm not a, I don't have the market cornered on anything. I'm, I'm in the same journey you are. I want to know more of him. Amen. And when you start, because here's something I was going to say today. Where you start from determines your trajectory. In other words, your starting point will tell you where you're headed. And the overwhelming amount of Christianity starts from a God who's angry with you because you've broke all the moral code. And he's so mad at you because you couldn't keep up with the moral code. He wanted nothing to do with you until he could kill his son in order to appease his wrath. I thought that sounded like Baal and Molech. It was the pagans. It was the pagan gods who demanded human sacrifice. And we want to build Christianity on that thought? That God required child sacrifice in order to appease his wrath 
for you not being able to keep a moral code? Those are things that we just don't see in Jesus. But could it be in his goodness? There is no greater love than for a man to lay down his life for his brother. So Jesus, before creation, who said, I will go to the fullest extent necessary in order to show your goodness, went all the way to the cross, Philippians chapter 2, who humbled himself to death and even death on the cross, the most humiliating, the most excruciating, the most barbaric form of death for a human to go through. He lowered himself, he humbled himself to that in order to show you the love of God, not to remove, not to do some deal about your moralism. He said on the cross, Father, forgive them. That wasn't, that wasn't a statement meaning, would you because you haven't? It was actually a statement that it's already handled. Forgiveness didn't start at the cross. Watch, connect the dots. 1 Corinthians 13. Love always forgives. And love keeps no record of God is. So when did God start keeping record of your wrong? Love doesn't do that. When did God become love? At the cross? Or has God always been love? If God's always been love, he's never kept records of wrong. We're just simply bound in deception of understanding him incorrectly and understanding ourselves incorrectly. But Jesus is the truth, right? The word of God. Jesus is what God's saying. The word Jesus is God's statement of what he's like. So look at Jesus and you've seen Father. And when did Jesus keep record of wrong? Could you take one last piece? The lady caught in adultery is brought out and thrown in front of Jesus. And the Pharisees stand around and say, The law says that this lady's to be stoned. What do you say? Jesus bends down, starts writing in the dust, right? It's amazing to think that on Mount Sinai, the finger of God wrote in tablets of stone. But in the New Covenant, Jesus started writing again. People want to say, he's down there writing the sins of all those Pharisees. I'm thinking, no, he's writing in the dirt what Father's like. Because after they all dropped their stones and walked away, what did Jesus say to that lady caught in adultery? Where are your accusers? They're not around here. Well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and... Do you think she went and lived a morally perfect life from there? No chance. So, if sin was based on her is about morality, then Jesus' statement to her is completely impossible. But if sin is parked on our wrong view that we're missing the mark of what Father's like, 
in the midst of the condemnation of the law, Jesus said there's no condemnation. Go and don't see Father incorrectly again because you've seen me and you saw no accusing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life, would not perish and have everlasting life. For he did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved, rescued from the wrong view of Father and the wrong view of yourself. So you can live fullness of the glory that he's intended for you to live. Will you stand up? God, we thank you for an opportunity to look at you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to have veils moved off of our hearts, veils removed from our eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 says that unlike Moses with a veiled face, we are those that behold you with unveiled faces. I'm going to pause in my prayer and say this to you. This was the biggest part I've had in my heart all morning. What you behold, you become. 2 Corinthians 3.18 For we beheld him with unveiled faces and continued to be transformed into his likeness. If you behold an angry, judgmental, wrathful God, you live your life angry and judgmental and wrathful. And we wonder why the body of Christ is some of the most hateful, judgmental, condemning people on the earth. We wonder why you and I, as a corporate body here at Gateway, can barely figure out how to get together with each other and be knitted together because we're so busy pointing our finger at everyone else because we view that God is actually pointing fingers at everybody. When you behold a smiling God who's never kept record of your wrong, when you behold that, you get to become someone who doesn't hold, or you get to become someone who doesn't keep a record of wrong of your brother and sister. When you behold a graceful, happy, and merciful God who's smiling at you, you get to become a person who's happy and graceful and smiling at everyone. No matter how many needles have been up their arm and no matter how much makeup that guy has on. You get to be open-armed just like Father is because Father is not in this posture. Father's in this posture. He is the Father. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, which is totally incorrect. Actually, in church history, it used to be called the parable of the running father because Jesus didn't come to tell you stories about sinners. He came to tell you stories about fathers, about father. The parable of the lost sheep is not about the lost sheep. It's about the shepherd who will do anything to go get that sheep. And the parable of the lost coin isn't about how bad that coin is because it went and got lost. It's about the one who will move anything and get anything and everything out of the way in order to find that lost coin. And the parable of the running father is not about some kid who went and spent everything that he had and got stuck out in the pig pen and wasted everything he had on prostitutes and everything else. It's about a father who went looking for him every day and tackled him even before he had the shower. It's about a father who kissed pig manure. It's about a father 
who didn't even make him take off his dirty clothes. He just put his clean clothes around him and put his ring on him and set him down at his table. Please don't be confused. That son never lost his inheritance. Scripture doesn't even say it that way. It just says he spent his possessions. And possessions are never our inheritance. He never lost his inheritance because his seat at the table was his inheritance, not the possessions. And the orphan nature, actually that parable, that son who went and asked his father for everything is actually the picture of a son. The son should never be afraid to come and ask his dad for what he provided. He rightfully went and asked of his father, let me have everything that you've provided for me. I don't know what happened to him out there. I don't know if he took all that money and he tried to go build a business and it failed. Scripture doesn't tell us. I don't know if he got married and got a divorce. I don't know if his friend got ran over or some tragedy happened in his life. I just know that no human wakes up wanting to go be a failure. And I know there's not one human that wakes up that wants to go be an addict. And there's not one human that wakes up and says, what I am aiming for in my life is to be a mess in a pig pen. That son never intended to be in the pig pen. I don't know what tragedy happened. I don't know what trauma. I just know that the reality is, is when we experience tragedy and trauma in our life, We become those that will try to find every answer possible to somehow get relief from the pain. And the evidence of that son was went with all of his spending and all the girls. and He was trying to do something to get away from some pain that was in his heart. But he was the one actually functioning as a son. And deception tried to get a hold. Deception tried to get a grip by saying to his son that you can't go back home to father and sit at the table. You'll just have to go back and be a slave. And it's actually the older son in that story that shows us the orphan nature as the one who was in the father's house but lived as a slave outside and never received anything that the father provided for him and who got mad at the son who actually lived in his inheritance. How many of you live as that slave in the field trying to earn and produce enough to, so that you can get a sense father's happy with you? How many times are we mad when what looks like some pig slop comes in and sits right at the table? The best thing about it, father wasn't mad at either one of the sons. He brought the one out of the pig pen and set him back up at the table and then went outside and talked to the older son who was raging mad and said to him, all this is available to you too. Because we have a good father who's always pursuing us. And we sang it this morning. He's for us, not against us. So God, this morning in this house, I pray for these hearts to be awakened to you in ways perhaps they never have before, strengthened in ways that they have. God, I pray that we'd become as sons that would come at you for everything that you've provided for us. 
that we wouldn't live trapped out in the field slaving and trying to perform enough to earn from you, but we would simply would embrace by faith through grace that we are those that belong at the table, not because we've done enough to earn our seat, but because you as a good father put us in the seat. So God, today we say in this house, there's now an unlocking of the beauty of sonship because we see the goodness of Father. And that will lead us in the progress of glory. Because God, there's a new renaissance happening in the earth. A renaissance of goodness, of beauty, and of progress. So God, even as we look towards this moment of baptism that's coming up next, the picture of our old sinful man not our un, old, unmoral man being washed away, but our man that understood you incorrectly being washed away. And we come alive, brand new, into the reality of your goodness and the beauty of our sonship. And so out of that baptismal pool be a progress of glory. God, we thank you for that today. We thank you that in seeing who you really are and who we really are, the deceptive choices to pursue our own way instead of your way continues to fade because we recognize that you're for us and not against us, so it's way better to do it your way than our way. God, we don't want to be those that keep making choices in life out of immorality because that continues to produce thorns and thistles. We want to follow you in your goodness that produces the fruit of life. That's the tree we want to eat from. We want to do our marriage your way, our finances your way. We want to do our thought life and our motives your way. We want to do the way we perceive and think about people your way. We want to do our gatherings your way. We want to do our time together your way. We want to do things from the tree of life. So grace us freshly in that because we see a a further glimpse of your goodness and your glory. I bless this house this morning for the next step in its rising. The dust is being cleared. Things are being knitted together because we're coming together around the table to see who you are and hear your heart and voice about who we are. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Tim.